Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Revolutionary Women was recorded at the 2018 festival and includes Sarah Goldman and Luke Slattery discussing the impact of Caroline Chisholm and Elizabeth Macquarie. They speak to Tracy Spicer. Hello and welcome. Wonderful to see so many of you here. That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we stand and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. My name's Tracy Spicer. I am but a humble journalist. I have only written one book and it's a memoir called The Good Girl Stripped Bear. So I'm very impressed by these two people on my left, your right, because I think it's a tremendous skill to be able to get into the mind of historical figures. I cannot wait for this discussion. Uh, if you could please turn your phones to silent, the Twitter handle is at New Writers Fest and the hashtag is NWF18. You may notice, however, that there is somebody missing here. Dear Julia Baird was up here at the festival yesterday, but a friend of hers has fallen ill and she's had to take her to hospital, so she's unable to join us. Who has read Victoria the Queen? It's a fabulous book, isn't it? If you haven't bought it straight after, as well as buying these wonderful people's books, please go out and buy Julia's as well, because it is brilliant. We're very sad not to have her here. But what a panel we have. Sarah Goldman has spent most of her life as a journalist in Australia and Britain, and her book is remarkable. Caroline Chisholm, An Irresistible Force. Would you please welcome Sarah Goldman? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And Luke Slattery is a Sydney-based author, journalist and literary columnist. His book is also extraordinary. Mrs M is a portrait of the formidable Elizabeth Macquarie. Please welcome Luke Slattery. Thank you. Before I came here today, I researched the definition of revolutionary, and it's anything from overthrowing governments to armed action to even having unconventional thoughts. All of these women that we're discussing here today were considered unconventional for their time. In fact, Luke, Elizabeth Macquarie's mother said, you have lived your short life at such a sharp angle to the world, and pressing you into the company of an appropriate suitor is like, well, forcing an owl upon the morn. <laughs> Can you please, uh, yeah, I mean, you bring Elizabeth to life so beautifully and so evocatively. What was she like as a young woman? Can I just add a caveat there? Uh, her mother didn't really say that. That's one of the, <laughs> the, the things that we should get straight at the start, and that's a, it's a work of fiction. But obviously it's intended to capture something of her nature, which was, I think, in a way, um, uh, single-minded, uh, purposeful, ambitious, uh, idealistic. Um, she was... Um, I may have strayed from the question already, by the way, but... If, if, <laughs> no, okay, no, just go, go for it. <laughs> so to give you an example of that, she was the... Um, when she, Lachlan Macquarie noticed wh when he first met her that she could handle an oar, a set of oars. She would, she just would like, she would row across the, you know, the lake in Scotland. But also when she get, she came out here, um, it was discovered that she was the finest angler in the colony. She could outfish anybody. So she was, you know, she was a very feisty, um, 
single-minded, purposeful woman in terms of her character. Um, but she did also, you know, on the subject of revolution, she did also embody uh, some very noble ideals that were revolutionary for the time. I don't want to stress this, you know, she wasn't, she was the governor's wife, she wasn't walking around with placards, you know? So she was, but she still believed in uh, equality f for women um, and uh, race equality and certainly um, the elevation of the poor. So she was, um, she, we were lucky to have her. She was quite something. So we could get a bit deeper into that narrative. Yeah. Would you mind doing a short reading from your book? I just sure, love yeah. the language in it. Okay, just one sec. I, I, we were rehearsing this and I, I must say that I just, the page fell open on something. I'll just go to it in a second. In this um, section, Elizabeth is, um, sitting, guess where, at her chair. <laughs> um, people think, often call it Lady Macquarie's <laughs> chair, but it's not. Um, uh, she, it was Mrs. Macquarie. So she's, she's sitting in her, her chair, looking out to the, the harbour, um, and she receives a visitor. Uh, and so just very briefly, the historical background. The Freycinet expedition of 1819 arrived um, and Elizabeth and Lachlan treated them um, sort of very well. They welcomed them. There was a great sort of meeting of minds to some uh, extent. And when this character, Jacques Arago, who was the draftsman and diarist on board the Freycinet expedition, left, he wrote about the colony in the most amazingly insightful terms. So she's about to meet Arago. Behind me, a clatter of hooves. I leaped to my feet, turned to face the intrusion. Toward me come two horses rasping hard. Brody rides the Bay Arab, and there is a visitor on a powerful chestnut stallion. I tie up my hair and put up my cap on my cap. Brody comes forward as the figure behind him dismounts in a tangle. Here is a man who once rode confidently and well, but no longer rides often. My guess is that he has boasted of his riding prowess before the stallion was saddled for him, and confessed to Brody on the ride that he had slightly exaggerated. If he had been honest at the start, they would have saddled him a gelding. Monsieur, Monsieur Arago, from the French, from the Freycinet expedition, Brody beams as he approaches. Brody is the kind of aide-de-camp, by the way, uh, as he approaches with long strides before executing a sharp pivot and motioning to his guest. The, the visitor follows, bow-legged and a little pained. This is Arago. He rubs his side, lifts a leg and shakes it. Before he has a chance to speak, Brody speaks for him. Do you know they're circumnavigating the world? We catch them on their run home. The visitor removes a deep green hat, gaucho style. I've seen its type before. From a head of thick curls, darkened with perspiration. He shakes my hand, takes my hand, pressing, almost caressing, with light fingers. And then with an open expression across a broad, high, across broad, high-coloured cheeks that have not seen a shaving blade for several days. Enchanté. A pleasure to meet you, madame. I, I have to do the French thing. <laughs> Arago, Jacques. Unlike his captain, the Uranese, draft, Uranese draftsman wears his hair long over the nape of the neck. It recedes from a strong face defined by a beetling brow and a heavy, slightly simian upper lip. I've just been explaining to Monsieur Brody, who turns to the lad and holds out a hand as if supporting a tray of drinks, that Port Jackson is a great surprise, a joy. I am charmed. We were told to expect, expect a prison, very grim. One of the inner circles of an, he clicks his fingers to spare his mind, enfant terriste. 
a hell on earth, earth. But the spirit here is lighter, more hopeful than many of the free ports we've put into on our voyage. Although it is certainly warm enough today for hell. He loosens his neckcloth as he smiles and then, not satisfied, unties it. Brody breaks in excitedly to... Anyway, it goes on. Um, I don't know whether you want to... But, but uh, do, do you want... Is that it? Do we got, do, no? That was magnificent. You write okay. beautifully, <laughs> Luke. Thank <laughs> you. You write beautifully and evocatively. That's very kind. Sarah, you write about Caroline Chisholm that, quote, she possessed considerable personal charm and congeniality, but also displayed a bold disregard for social custom, refusing to marry Archibald Chisholm unless he agreed to let her lead a public life. Very unusual at the time. What was it about Caroline's upbringing that shaped her character to become so unconventional, do you think? She started, first of all, I want to apologise if my voice is a bit funny. I've got one of those dreadful lurgies at the moment, so excuse me. Um, Caroline was born into a, a, what became a middle-class family. It, her father had been a working-class, uh, an itinerant agricultural worker, and he had gone through four wives and a whole stack of children by the time Caroline was born. And he, um, he and his wife were both uh, Caroline's mother, Sarah, although there's some doubts about her actual legitimacy and that I won't go down that street because that'll take us another half an hour to explain that. But uh, there were fierce philanthropists and they really wanted to help people. It wasn't just meaning throwing money at people. They went out of their way to actually take people into their homes and help them. So she grew up with an understanding that that is something she should do. And she decided, even before she met her husband, Archibald, that she wanted to actually help people. And she became... She started life reasonably conservatively, even though she did say to Archibald, I'm not going to marry you unless you let me lead a public life. And she gave him a month to go off and think about it. And of course, he trotted back to her and said, yes, whatever you want, I'll do it. Um, but she became more and more radical as she went on. And I think as she found the way to power, because she fronted incredibly powerful people, she went um, in India to Sir Frederick Adam, who was, had been a at a Waterloo hero, and she went. She talked him into helping her um, set up a school in India for children. She went to Sir George Gipps in Sydney, and then back in London, she went to um, Earl Grey, who was the uh, colonial secretary of the se uh, for the colonies, not the tea man, but the tea man's son actually. And so she she worked out how to front up to these people and get them to do what she wanted to do. And as success added to success, she actually became more and more radical. And the radicalization was on account of helping the poor and needy. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> Could you please read a little bit from your book as well? I know that you've got the cold, but I'm, we'd love to hear yes. some. Thank you. Okay, well, I, I have a piece right near the beginning. Um, she married... Archibald, when she was 20 in 1930, and he was 10 years older than she was, and within nine months or so of them being married, she had her first child. And so this is the... Um, and what happens, I think, in this passage I'm going to read, 
I think helped set her up for a lot of the work that she did later. Um, so, it's, um, so this is where she's pregnant. Over the next 20 years, Caroline would endure eight pregnancies and give birth on three continents and even at sea, often in primitive, sometimes harrowing conditions, without any apparent lasting damage to her own health. This first, first birth, though, ended in tragedy, a tragedy that would shape her future. The infant, named Caroline after her mother, died just three weeks later and was buried on Wednesday, the 26th of October, near her grandfather, William Jones, in the graveyard of the Anglican Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Northampton. Previous biographers have either ignored this daughter or glibly passed over her demise. Certainly, children dying was not unusual in the 19th century. Some 16% of infants perished in their first two years of life in Britain in the 1840s and 1850s. Confronted with such overwhelming data, it's tempting to shrug a metaphorical shoulder, but that is to neglect the likely emotional impact on Caroline. The baby was not just another statistic. A young woman, devoted to her God, in love with her husband and passionate about her humanity, could not lose her first child without the consequences lodging deep within her psyche. She had carried the baby for nine months, had nursed her for just three weeks, and within that time had invested her hopes and dreams in the infant she had planned to take with her as she ventured across the seas. The heartbreak of bearing a tiny daughter, one who, moreover, carried Caroline's own name, a sure sign of not just tradition but also strong maternal devotion, would profoundly affect her. Seventeen years and the birth of four sons would pass before Caroline had another daughter. In the intervening period, she would be drawn almost subconsciously to protecting helpless and broken young women. She seemed determined to defend other women's daughters, as if to make up for not saving her own. When she had told Archibald that she intended to leave a life of charitable work, she was still unaware of what direction that would take. The death of her baby most likely helped define her path. Oh, so heartbreaking, isn't it? Beautiful. There's so many parallels in what you just shared with us with what makes a revolutionary. And I read this amazing quote by Che Guevara a couple of days ago. He said, the most beautiful quality of a revolutionary is the capacity to feel deeply any injustice committed against anyone anywhere in the world. And it sounds like that was in Caroline Chisholm's family. She was brought up with that idea and then with that horrific experience, her heart went out particularly to the young women of yeah. Australia. Luke, the Macquarie's were, were a really interesting couple, weren't they? Yep. They emancipated convicts and wanted to build a grand city to lift up the population, to inspire them. Was it their vision or was it Elizabeth's passion that made her in particular so revolutionary? Was it her, their vision? Are you saying, was it a shared thing? Or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it was definitely a shared thing, you know. I think that they, <coughs> um, they came out here, I think that Macquarie's particular kind of fierce semi-egalitarianism was probably unexpected by the British um, uh, who sent him out here. And I, once they were out here, they realised they had a bit of a problem on their hands because he was a, you know, he was he was very fiercely committed to emancipation of convicts. Uh, so I think she shared his vision. I think she was instinctively compassionate. I think there's a Scots thing as well going on there. 
I think there's a sort of a democratic... You know, some, I've been to Scotland and someone once said to me, we're the most political country in the world. Don't know if it's true, but, but they're very um, uh, passionate about um, things like, you know, equality and, and basically sort of human rights. I mean, one of the things that I remember reading about the real Elizabeth is that um, there was a complaint from, um, I think, a military officer that he would come to... He went to a party and she was... Um, sort of welcoming all the convicts. I mean, they were the first governor couple, or they were, Macquarie was the first governor to bring convicts to governor, government house. And she was welcoming the convicts, but she spurned the military guy. And he basically thought this was a tremendous insult, and I guess it was. So I guess, you know, that goes to your, they were kind of like reverse snobs, the Macquaries. They, they looked to the convicts, and they were kind of like that towards the, um, you know, the military or people who came out with money. And I think that you were talking about instinct and passion. That's just an instinctive thing for her, I think. Mm. Yeah. And that love of Scotland also comes through so powerfully Yeah, yeah. in your were, book. Thank you. I mean, well, they're both shaped by Scotland, you know, I think, and the Scottish Enlightenment, um, which, which had a big influence on, on Macquarie and a sense of social optimism. You know, they were very... It was remarkable when both Elizabeth and, and Lachlan, you know, looked at this place, which had really only just got up off its feet, and they wanted to really create something uh, wonderful. I mean, how many of you know, know that they actually built a Chinese pagoda as a lighthouse up in Newcastle? Like, it's the most fanciful, dreamy thing. You know, the, th three years after the colonies founded, Macquarie comes here, oh, we put a lighthouse at Newcastle, it will be in the shape of a Chinese pagoda. <laughs> I mean, what a kind of whimsical, revolutionary idea to, to make something... It, Newcastle was a place of secondary correction, right? Is that how it began? Yeah. So it's a place of secondary correction, and he puts this, this wonderful fantasia up here and beautifies it, bringing beauty... I mean, beauty, that's a revolutionary action. Yeah. Sorry, I've gone on a bit. It's the architecture <laughs> of happiness, isn't it? Yeah, Before yeah, that phrase was popularised. Yeah, 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 yeah. um, Caroline Chisholm, gosh, did so much. Yes. So much. What do you think was her greatest revolutionary act in her life? It's hard to quantify them each as a revolutionary act because mm. what she was doing was pushing the barriers. I suppose that's what you mean. It's um, Each step was a little bit further. I. I think what she did, and the, what she's best known for by most people, if you say Caroline Chisholm, um, apart from the person who said, oh, is she the um, headmistress of my sister's school? But that's a <laughs> totally different one. Um, most people know that she helped the early Bounty Girls here. The Bounty Girls were the girls who were brought out for 15 pounds. The ship's captains received 15 pounds, and they bought, came out here and uh, when they needed to redress the, um, the gender imbalance here. And the, um, when, as the girls arrived, when Caroline was here, it was 1840, and there was a horrible drought. There was, um, there was, Sydney was in depression for a stack of different reasons. Britain had also been in depression, which meant that, or recession, which meant that um, goods were not being sold back home, and there was just... Economically, there was all sorts of problems. The girls arrived out here looking for work. Mostly they were either illiterate or extraordinarily badly educated. 
and they were looking for, for work, and there just wasn't any work in Sydney um, for most of these girls. And most of them weren't actually... Um, they weren't necessarily could have been used within as shop girls or as maids for well-known for for ladies and such like, because they were basically uh, they just hadn't been educated along that way. So what she actually organised was to house the once she'd gone to Governor Gibbs, she she housed them and then found them jobs in the bush and she took them into the bush. And that sounds reasonably simple, but what she actually did was each girl, she put into a job with a contract, and the contracts were written, which defined how much they would be paid, and various conditions of, you know, one day a week off, or, and what they would be given to eat. So the girls were given, they knew that they had a proper job with proper conditions, they were being, uh, the employers would pay, would pay for them to go there, and if the employer wasn't happy with them, the employer had to uh, pay for their repatriation back to Sydney. And what it actually meant was there was a whole stack, I mean, there were, when she arrived, at the time when she started the home, there, it was estimated there were some, something like 600 girls just living rough among the city. Mm. Some of them on the verge of starvation, they had no money. Um, some were turning to prostitution just to make some money to live. They, it just, they were given 10 days on the boat, they arrived on, then they were tossed off and told to go and look after themselves. So she, she started with the girls, she eventually helped men and uh, families as well. She wrote over 2,000 contracts, not one was ever challenged. But most importantly, and I'm going around, meandering around with this as well, but what it actually did is it gave those girls a respect that they hadn't had in Britain. And it gave them a respect that they had, uh, she treated them with respect, the fact they were employed under a specific contract gave them respect. It meant the employers had to respect them because they had the contract and the girls could always go back to Caroline and say, but he didn't or she didn't. She insisted that no girl went anywhere where there wasn't a woman in the house, so there was some protection for the women. And it was the respect she gave these very disadvantaged poor girls that had never had that respect, certainly not back in Britain. And initially they hadn't received it here either until she, put, she, she worked for them and found them work. There's such an interesting parallel here also with your book, Luke, that Elizabeth Macquarie gave respect to people who weren't considered to be respectable at that time. Absolutely, yeah, the poor old convicts. But, um, you know, sent out here for pe petty crimes. Yeah. So can I, something I wanted to just, can I just circle back to something yeah, that I thought I did? You know, we talk about revolution and, um, to, you know, I think there is a sense in which, you know, Elizabeth was, uh, had very strong um, instincts that were revolutionary for the time. But I, I just kind of wanted to just put a little bit of a, a spotlight on what was happening in Britain to kind of help to understand the, the contrast, you know, between what they were doing and you were saying this sense that the convicts were something special and one day would, in a sense, carry the nation. But uh, because it's so, so radically different to what was happening in Britain at the time, you know, that was the Regency period, you know, after King George's uh, the third incapacitation and it was just a vicious time. It was, um, you know, 
uh, was the time of the Peterloo Massacre around 1819 when uh, there was a, a, a demonstration for democracy, just for democracy, nothing more. People gathered in um, at the streets of Manchester and um, the King's Hussars mowed them down and about 11 people were killed in that day. So it was the time of the Luddite rebellions, you know. It was a time when the, um, the Lord Mayor of London said, um, oh, we're not investing anything in education for the poor. Um, the poor are poor because God made them poor and we shouldn't really sort of trouble them. That's their station in life. And, you know, out here, Macquarie invested 7% of colonial revenue in schools and schools for the poor, you know. Uh, so just... You know, I think that's 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 got, and you've got to understand it, but in, especially in that contrast of a socially vicious time in England and this quite um, uh, ambitious so social. Well, it's almost like a welfare state, isn't it, in a way? So, anyway, that brings me to my next question because what often revolutions rise up in reaction to something. So, for yeah. example, the women's march is predominantly in response to Donald Trump being named as president. Yeah. Um, what were some of the particular challenges or hurdles that the Macquaries faced with the kind of activist work that they were doing? Uh, well, they faced challenges everywhere they turned because the, the place was um, kind of rent with division, you know. Um, so every time they tried to... Um, uh, the, the policy of elevating the, the convict. By elevating, what I mean is um, very early form of parole. I think we invented parole. I don't think it existed, oh. yeah. I think that the idea of saying, oh, you seem like a good chap and you haven't done anything wrong and, okay, we'll give you your freedom and, you know, pending, you know, if you do something wrong, you're back in the clink. But um, so, you know, we, I think that was a, an invention of the Macquarie period. But people would send letters through to, to the colonial office um, and... So that's one form. There was basically opposition among the soldiers and free settlers and with people within the administration. And so uh, there came to be, there was a sort of a, uh, an upswell is maybe the wrong word, but there was certainly a fierce opposition to that policy of emancipation. And there was fierce opposition to the policy of beautification as well. Mm. So ultimately they send out a commissioner to really trash Macquarie. So it's kind of like a political tragedy in a way. Yeah. So that's a very a apposite question because, yeah, he faced a lot of opposition and it kind of did, did him in in the end. Mm. What about Caroline Chisholm? What were the main hurdles that she faced? And importantly, how did she overcome them? How did she respond to them as, as a revolutionary? Okay, well, her main hurdles were both religious and ethnic, ethnicity. So she, um, she'd been born uh, a Protestant. She became a Catholic when she married Archibald, who was a Scottish Catholic. And, uh, and she engaged with Catholicism totally. But she was also incredibly bipartisan across all religions. She, um, at, at one stage, she was criticised by, I don't know how... Many of you might remember the name John Dunmore Lang, who was a, a Wesleyan minister at the time. And he, he wrote that he was on a personal... They had a love-hate relationship. Um, he, on, on a personal level, he was very supportive of Caroline, but he was very concerned because um, he thought that she was a, um, 
would be subject to her Romanish masters, the, the Catholic priests. And so there, at that time, there was still a lot of angst between Protestants and Catholics. And he wrote at one stage that there were... He, want, he was scared that Australia would be, was going to become a, a, um, a Catholic country. And, he, and I, I'm paraphrasing here. And, she, um, and he said he wanted to live and die amongst his own people. She had a far more holistic view, and she wrote back. And there was a lot of arguments that went backwards and forwards in the newspapers, and reading the newspapers of the day are fantastic. And I've got to say, the National um, Library's trove is just brilliant mm. for this. Um, but the, uh, she wrote back, and because she'd been in India before she came to Australia, and she wrote back, and, she, and again, it was, this is in 19th century terms, she said, I've lived amongst... Um, pagans and he heathens and Mohammedans and Hindus. They never molested me in my devotion, and I never insulted them in theirs. Mm -hmm. she, was, uh, sh she helped Jewish girls. She talked about the indigenous people as being the original holders of the land. And this was something like 145 years before Marbo. She, um, she supported the Chinese. She wrote in a... Um, newspaper article in, in the Melbourne Argus during the, the gold fields and the, there was quite a large uh, Chinese immigration coming in at that stage there. And she just said, we, we cannot stop this, um, this immigration. We should be treating, and again, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the ex that quote, but she was saying, we should treat man as man without distinction of color or climb or a man as a man. A woman is a woman. Um, so she had a lot of opposition initially from both the Anglicans and from the Catholics because they were scared that she wouldn't proselytize enough on her side. The Anglicans were scared that she would proselytize too much. And eventually she actually won all of them over, mostly because they saw that she was actually absolutely honest about the fact that she didn't allow for this side or that side. She just wanted to help anyone. Yeah. That was amazing. If she was around today, I think we would call her a reformer, but we would also call her a feminist. But there's some mm. contention about whether she is a feminist or not, isn't, isn't there? There is. Um, the, uh, the feminists of the 1960s and 70s, of whom I have immense admiration, and I have no plan at all to criticize them. But I think on this one case, they actually got it wrong. They tended to, they criticized Caroline for putting girls into domestic situations. And they said that she, I, again, the, the actual quote alludes me, but it was along the lines of, she was responsible for a, dec um, a, a century of women, of Australian women being servants, basically. But what Caroline was actually doing was she was working with what she had. The girls were, by and large, either illiterate or very badly educated. She gave them the respect. She wasn't about to send them into engineering jobs because, for a start, there was no universities here in, until 1850 was the first. And the first time a, a woman was allowed to graduate was 1883, down in Melbourne. Um, th those opportunities weren't there. So the feminists were criticizing her for that, and they were also criticizing because she wanted a certain sort of 
um, woman to come over. And she, she actually said, there's no use bringing immoral women, i.e. prostitutes over, because they won't be wanted for work, they won't be wanted for wives. So she was sort of cherry-picking the way all governments do, I suppose, with immigrants. But she was, she was working with what she had. She gave the girls an opportunity. And if they want to get married, fine. But what she was actually doing is giving them a chance to work, to look after themselves, receive an income. And she, she said um, in England, at a, at a lecture in England, um, I'm sure that Almighty God did not plan for women to be wives, to be cooks and maids all their life. Um, and she also talked in the Melbourne Argus about that women here should be should be resilient and independent women, and that's what the country needed. So she wasn't an anti-feminist; she was definitely a proto-feminist. Mm. There's a lot of complexity around uh, the remembrances and the history of strong women. I know that in Julia's book, she writes that Queen Victoria never considered herself to be a feminist despite all of her remarkable achievements. In fact, she was very against the suffragettes at the time. Luke, how difficult was it for you as a man writing a woman's history? Um, uh, especially with the sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, sorry, that's just a plot spoiler, but I mean, there's, it's, um, <laughs> but that might get you interested anyway. So, um, look, it, yeah, it was kind of difficult, but, it, but the book, it, it was an inspiration. The, the, it, it was a, the book came to me as a, in an inspirational sense because I'd been to Mull, I'd been, I knew quite a bit about the Macquarie's. And then I, I went to Macquarie's mausoleum, and I think I thought, I thought a lot about Elizabeth when I was on the island of Mull and her long period of widowhood, mm. about 11 years, and what it would have been like on, on Mull. And I think I imaginatively connected with her. And then I came home and I, I heard the first two lines of dialogue in a sort of a dream. Uh, like I was jet lagged, and so <laughs> uh, you know, at four o'clock I woke, and I was this this this. this just three short sentences, three sort of pulses of, um, and I kind of knew it was, I knew who it was, I knew it was Elizabeth's voice, um, uh, in a strange way, like it's not like it was a voice, it wasn't a schizophrenic moment or anything like it, hearing voices, but it's just, I, I knew what she said, I knew I'd just come back from Mull, and I used to talk about the difficulties, but I think it, all I had was that little, that tone, and I just went, went with it. Um, and, of course, I did encounter difficulties along the way, but I think all I had to do was try to sustain, sustain that tone. And then I had to go back to Elizabeth's letters, which I had read a little bit of, and then adapt that tone so that I, I didn't want the tone of... I didn't actually want her real voice, so I wanted something between her voice and a modern voice, you mm. know, something different. So it was difficult, but not that difficult, mm. you know, um, because I'd had this, it was given to me. Yeah. Like, I, I had to write it that way, you know. So. Well, you achieved it beautifully. In fact, you, you both set the, set the scene and the tone for your books very early in the piece and then take us on an extraordinary journey. 
I'm going to open this to questions in about two minutes. I think there'll be a, a roving microphone around. Ah, yes, two microphones at the back, one at each side. Look at this, rock stars. <laughs> uh, please have a think about what questions you would like to ask. The last question I would like to ask each of you is, what lessons can we learn in a modern context about revolutionary acts and revolutionary women from the lessons of history from both of the remarkable women that you've written about? Sarah? Okay, well, I think... Sorry, just, just processing it through first. Um, it's I, a big I, question, by the way. It's a big <laughs> question. <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> I think what it... Certainly in Caroline's case, and with, with what she was about, it's taken a long time, and we're still not necessarily there yet. So, for example, in the 1850s, 60s, she was early 60s, she, was, she gave a series of lectures in Sydney. And in, that, in those lectures, she was actually talking about women voting. And she talked about the fact that, um, that male, that what, should I, what was going to happen is there was going to be male enfranchisement right across the board, and that that would naturally lead to women voting, and that in a proper society, that was not a bad thing and that it would come. Well, it took a long time before it actually did come. It was, you know, 1902 before women voted, and it was still the Aboriginal people, the Indigenous people were still not allowed to vote till much further on. And, in fact, just a little sidebar on that, because it's one of my favourite stories, is that in 1864 in Victoria, there was a, a strange thing in the Electoral Act down there, in the Victorian Elect, was obviously before we were, became a Commonwealth, which allowed women to vote. And in the, that election, women did vote. Then the men decided that was not a particularly good idea and they changed the loophole. They closed up the loophole so women suddenly lost their vote again. But I think what it was actually doing, um, what the lesson, coming back a long way around to your story, is that a lot of the things she was talking about took time, took a long time to, to come in. And we're, as I said, we're still not there. So, okay, we're, we're voting. Um, the, there are, the, for example, the, um, about the same time as Caroline Chisholm was around in England, there was Mary Somerville, who was a brilliant scientist. Now, she wasn't allowed into the royal... Um, College of, of Science in, I think, I forget the actual title. I'm forgetting a lot today, it's all my cold. Um, because she was a woman. And it wasn't until 1945 they allowed women into that. There's a long lag space. So there's, there's the active and there's the ones that just work away at it and work away at it. And I think why I find Caroline so compelling is that she started some of those conversations. Mm. I don't know that in Australia anyone was actually talking about women voting earlier than 1850. And that's a conversation which I was somewhat blown away to find. Mm. Really beautifully yeah. explained. Luke, what lessons can we learn from Elizabeth Macquarie? I'm looking for something I can't find. Anyway, I'll just have to <laughs> extemporise. Um, uh, there's two things. One is, I think, uh, the importance of a, politi a politics of caring. Uh, I think she had a heart. I don't think she was particularly ideological, but she had a heart and she cared. And the other thing, just 
briefly, which I think is very important, is that if you look at the, her story and Macquarie's story and what they were doing, you see Australia in a new light. Um, you see it in the light that Charles Darwin saw when he came about 10 years after the Macquaries left. And he basically wrote in his journals, this is on the Beagle, he said, look, as a place of punishment, it doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't really particularly serve, you know, I mean, but as a, as a place uh, for making men and women who had been vagabonds in one world, um, upstanding, creative, dynamic people in a new world, um, it is perhaps the most um, extraordinary uh, social experiment the world has ever known. So I think if we can see through their project the, those early years as something uh, dynamic and revolutionary, um, we see, uh, I think, the, the message that they would want to perhaps impart to us and that we should take on board, actually. Magnificently put. Please put your hands together for our wonderful authors. Thank you. And who would like to ask the first question? We have one up the back. Thank you. Uh, sorry, this... Yeah, this is not so much a question um, as a comment. Um, it's very appropriate, Luke, that you should have your book here this year because Elizabeth and Lachlan Macquarie made three visits to Newcastle. Mm. Their second one was exactly 200 years ago this year and this, that was their longest trip. Mm. And on the 31st of July, we will be celebrating 200 years since he went up the river, they went up yeah. the river yeah. with um, James Wallace and called Wallace's Plains, which today we know as Maitland. Mm -hmm. And then on the 2nd of um, August, 200 years ago, was the first service ever conducted in the new Christchurch, which Wallace had built. And the day after that, the Reverend Cowper married 10 uh, people in the morning and in the afternoon baptised up to 30 babies. Wow. So hopefully we will remember that. Uh, the, we'll have a special service perhaps in Christchurch Cathedral remembering that 200 years. The other interesting thing about Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth was, of course, that because of the big report, Lachlan Macquarie never, ever received his pension. Yeah. Um, and one of the people who was so much against him was who we were taught to be a hero was John MacArthur mm. and Samuel... Um, the Marsden. Marsden, thank yeah. you, yes, the Anglican minister. Yeah. But um, Elizabeth, when Lachlan died, continued to work for that pension, yeah. and when she eventually did get it, she gave it to charity, of course. Yeah. So there's such a connection, I think, between the Macquaries and Newcastle, and yeah. always will be. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's incredibly special to be talking about the Macquaries being here in Newcastle. Who uh, else would like to ask a question? We have one down the front here in the second row. Thank you. Sarah, just... Sorry. Just wanted to ask, um, with the... Um, the, the Bounty Girls, when they came out, 
Was Carolyn Chisholm, I'm, I'm just not sure of the date, so this may not be relevant, the, um, the Irish Famine Girls that came out, um, did she ever have anything to do with helping them at all? Yes, she did. Um, the Bounty Girls came out probably just before the, the famine happened. Um, the famine, she, the Chisholms went back to England um, in 1846 for about uh, eight years before they then went to the goldfields. And that was coinciding with about the time of the Irish famine happening. And she was very well aware of what was happening then. And part of her reason, she spent a number of years back in England, apart from having more children. She had various children at different times. Um, she traveled around a lot, talking about what a wonderful country Australia was, the opportunities out here. And she saw Australia as a way of the depressed, the working, um, the people who couldn't get on with life in, um, in Britain because of poverty, etc. She saw Australia as a, a land of milk and honey for them. And she, she was very, very vocal. She traveled around the world, around the country, as I said, pushing Australia. And she helped set up um, an organization called the Family um, Colonization Loan Society, whereby they hired boats to help people go there. And some of them were the Irish, and they, she also helped um, some of the orphans, some of the, um, not the orphans, the children who had been left behind, and families who had been left behind by the convicts and by the early settlers, who couldn't take the young children because no one wanted them because they were unemployable in those days. And she sent out a couple boatloads of children uh, with, with government help, to some extent, there was a lot of toing and throwing with the government. But she certainly did her piece on that, yes. Thank you for that question, too. Um, who else would like to ask a question? Oh, yes, there's one da here and then one up the back. We'll get a microphone to each of you. But first, the lady in the lovely lime green. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Luke, for a wonderful uh, balance of fiction and history uh, in your book. I thought, found it intriguing. I just wonder if you'd like to comment on the Aboriginal characters that are in the book and uh, how you place them in the lives of the Macquaries. Um, yeah, it's a good question and it's a kind of a tricky one. I, I think uh, with the character of Bungari, I just wanted to... I knew that um, there was a lot of affection between Macquarie and Bungari and also I was fascinated by his character. He's one of the most fascinating people in early colonial history and he's the most depicted of anyone, you know, of any race. You know, he's always... Be so I think he's a powerful uh, presence and I wanted to um, just weave him into their lives. I know that when Macquarie, on his last day, he went and he gave him the Admiral's uniform that he was fond of wearing on the land that he'd set him up with. I mean, there's a lot of criticism about Macquarie's aspects of what happened during Macquarie's time, but I think by and large he was benevolent towards the Sydney tribes. And, um, and his wife, Cora Gooseberry, I, I think I just like the name. 
you know, it was just a fantastic. She uh, she had to go in with that a name of like of Cora Gooseberry, but there, but I read some accounts of her as well, and so um, but uh, in a way I knew nothing about her, but I I, I elevated her importance. Um, uh, so look, I hope that's okay. You know, it's one's nervous about these things, but um, and I wanted to dignify um, those characters as well. Yeah, Bungary in particular leaps off the page. Yeah. Fantastic character. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, with his silk stockings, I think. Thank you. Oh, speaking of names. I was speaking of names. Um, I just wondered why you didn't name the architect a, a student. I, you may have said this at the end of the book, but yeah. um, I found it intriguing that he didn't have a name. Yeah, look, that's a tough one. I think it's because um, uh, I wanted to embroider this uh, meeting of minds with uh, around Elizabeth and uh, the character who's more or less Francis Greenway. Um, and uh, I wanted to do that partly because of some things that were in my own mind and that I'd brought to it, but, but also there are some traces in, the le in Elizabeth's uh, letters, um, and it's a very difficult thing to pin down, but there's some traces of a very, of a woman who, look, basically a historian told me she was really into men, you know, before I set <laughs> off on this thing, and you can, t you can see um, this... Uh, very, I don't know really how to describe it, just, just this real warmth and you could imagine, you could imagine her, get, I could imagine her on the basis of actual evidence um, getting a little bit tangled up with someone, but of course it didn't happen. So I, that, not, by not naming him, him Francis Greenway, it's a signal to the reader that there, this is an area of favour, this is, this is an area of invention, you know, basically. Um, and just as some of the early, the, the sort of the, the, the novellas of the 19th century don't really have characters, they have, you know, the preacher, the governor, the, you know, Voltaire has a character just called the child of nature. So there's a precedent for it. And so that's, that's it, it, so it should be a little flag saying there's fantasy here, you know, but, um, but it's fantasy rooted in, to some extent, in the archives, you know. So. Very clever. Uh, next question, please. There's one down the front here. Thank you very much. I was, um, hello, Luke. I was just, um, I was fascinated by your connection with Caroline and the contract. Right? It, what a remarkable device for this woman to, to come upon, uh, you know, a traditional uh, men's um, device, the contract, and use that um, to protect women absolutely revolutionary. How did she come by this idea? And before you answer that, uh, women still have a contract problem and it's on your chest, Joseph. <laughs> it's about, uh, it's about work, if that's not too Trumpian, it's about uh, work, workplaces and um, contracts that uh, women enter into um, to prevent them speaking about what happens in the workplace. Um, so contracts are still very important for women, but back to this. Where did she get the idea of, of using the contracts to protect well, she, women? She was an incredibly thorough woman, but she was also quite friendly with a number of the lawyers in the and quite high-placed lawyers in the settlement. There was um, Sir Roger Theory, who was um, one of the gentlemen who helped prosecute 
the, um, the perpetrators of the Mile Creek massacre, and that happened twice. They, for, I don't know if how where people out of the Mile Creek massacre had happened on the Liverpool Plains um, mid-1838. And there was, um, it, it was a carnage of, uh, they were convicts and emancipists um, who basically butchered and burnt the bodies of a whole stack of indigenous women, old men and children. And they finally took them to trial. And Roger Theory was the man who prosecuted this. And he, um, and in fact, the first trial they were absolved and then they went back again and eventually seven people hung for this. It was the only time in Australian uh, colonial history that any white people were hung uh, for crimes against the indigenous people. But that's aside. So she was, she was very friendly with Roger Theory. She was also uh, friendly with another lawyer, Thomas Callahan, who was um, a young, he was a couple of years young, or a few years younger than she was, but he, he quite fancied her. And Archibald, her husband, was overseas at, um, back in India at that stage. And so there was a little contretemps going on. Never any suggestion of an affair, but there was certainly something going on between them. And he actually did go and help her on occasions with the, writing the contracts, and that's been acknowledged. So I sus it's, it was a combination of the fact that she was she did her homework on everything before she started the, uh, the home for the girls and before she sent them out into the bush. She, she wrote letters finding out how many girls were needed, where, under what conditions, what their payment would be, etc. So obviously a contract is, follows on from that. She'd had a reasonably good education, which was unusual in 19th century women, very unusual. And she was friendly with the, um, with the lawyers. Not too friendly. Not too friendly, <laughs> no, though Thomas Callahan really did fancy her, according to his diaries. Um, so that's quite nice. But um, so... That's basically, she was in that social group, if you like. Thank you for that question. The contracts were certainly ingenious. <laughs> they were, ingenious. They? And thank you for drawing attention to my T-shirt. This is um, <laughs> Now Australia, speaking of a modern revolution about the Me Too and Time's Up movements. We've set up some crowdfunding and philanthropy under now.org.au to try to connect anyone who's been sexually harassed or indecently assaulted in the workplace with counselling or legal help. So. Uh, revolutions continue, don't they? It's um. <laughs> One more question. Please. It's uh. It was once said that in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I love that quote. Mm. What you have both done is to lift the veil. Because prior to your books, the way these women were seen was quite different. And you've really fleshed out their characters, their strength, and their truly revolutionary acts. So I would like to thank you for not only writing histories, but writing her stories, because we certainly need more of them. Would you please thank our wonderful authors, Sarah Goldman and Luke Slattery. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2018 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Join us in 2019 from April 5 to 7 and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.